So today uh, I wanted to talk about the Diamond Sutra, which I'm reading um, at the moment. The actual Diamond Sutra is only the first 30, not even that, the first 27 pages of this, and it could actually probably be condensed if it was printed on the whole page to 20 pages or less. Uh, and the rest of it is lots of commentary, um, as these books tend to go. Um, so I wanted to introduce a couple things first. One, about the, the sutras in general. Uh, it's not something that gets talked about here a lot in the Dharma talks. Uh, but since I'm studying this, and since my job in life as a literature professor is reading books and trying to explain them to people, it seemed like a natural uh, subject for my talk since I'm reading this. And I asked to read the Heart Sutra today because we're reading the Diamond Sutra and they, they have some things in common and I'll reference the Heart Sutra. But I wanted to mention that uh, the first time reading the Heart Sutra here always reminds me of the first time that I came to Oan and we read the, they chanted the Heart Sutra like we did today and I thought, well, this is strange, pounding on a wooden fish and reciting this very strange language, um, intriguing language, because I kind of have a penchant for philosophy and abstract thought, so, uh, so that part was fine, but I would have never guessed that I, that day, that I would be asking for it to be recited and then talking about yet another sutra, um, so just kind of a word that, uh, if it seems strange to you, that's fine, and maybe it will always stream, seem strange to you, that's fine, but for me, I've sort of gotten used to the idea of these texts, um, and yeah, I don't worry about them being strange, and yeah, for some reason, there was an evolution there. Uh, the sutras are, just to say a quick word about their origins, uh, they're, they're to some degree unknown, to some degree they're attributed to the Buddha, uh, depending on who you ask, depending on if you ask a Buddhist or a scholar. Um, sutras like the Heart Sutra, they seem to not be attributed to the Buddha, they seem to be a condensation, a very dense expression of the teachings. Um, and there's all sorts of different collections of sutras. There's different canons. There's the, the Pali canon that uh, tends to be more a part of Theravada or Hinayana Buddhism, which generally are the older uh, schools based in, uh, in India and in South Asia. And then there are the, there's several canons, but the other one is the, the Mahayana canon and the difference, the distinction between Theravada and, or which is also known as Hinayana, and Mahayana is a, a fairly uh, basic distinction, important distinction in, in Buddhist practices. Mahayana, which includes Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, uh, as well as other forms of Chinese Zen and and other East Asian practices, but, but widespread. Uh, Mahayana means great vehicle or greater vehicle or great path. And Hinayana, which 
is a Mahayana term, which I'll explain, means uh, lesser vehicle or, or lesser path. And it's a word I don't feel particularly comfortable using because I don't want to assume that anyone is on a lesser path than, than I am as a Zen Buddhist. Uh, so that's why it sometimes is referred to as Theravada Buddhism. But Theravada doesn't necessarily include all the schools. Hinayana is sort of a word for everything else, in a sense, that's not Mahayana or that's part of the older schools. Um, a couple primary distinctions between the two. Uh, one, reason, one, one sort of objective criterion that makes Mahayana Buddhism greater is that it includes a, a lay practice for sort of ordinary people, whereas in Theravada, Hinayana Buddhism, it was just a monastic practice. Uh, so in a sense, there's less people that can practice this. You can only practice this if you're a dedicated monk. And also a very important thing in Mahayana Buddhism is the, the idea of the Bodhisattva, who is someone that upon uh, death, instead of choosing liberation from the cycle of death and rebirth, decides to come back uh, to help out in order to liberate all beings. So there's this sense of all-inclusiveness, whereas in other forms of Buddhism, there's more of an emphasis on personal liberation as opposed to the liberation of anyone. Uh, but to me, if everyone's interconnected, how could personal liberation be any different than complete liberation for anyone? So I don't like to uh, distinguish it on these grounds. One thing that does seem to distinguish it as well between the two schools is in the older Theravada Hinayana Buddhisms, there is, and I say Buddhisms because it's a number of different schools that are all involved in traditions and lineages, uh, there's an emphasis on shila, on morality, involving the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path of right speech and right livelihood and, um, yeah, the other six that I'm drawing a blank on, right speech, right thought, right concentration, right effort. Um, and those are all very important. Those things that you, you follow a sort of rigorous practice to, for, to seek personal liberation. And in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, those things are all very important still. They're, they're, not, they're, they're still very much a part of it, but the emphasis seems to be more on wisdom, uh, specifically wisdom about emptiness. Uh, and the term emptiness is one that is sort of impossible to define, uh, though I'll be talking about it a bit here. And it seems to be at the core of the Diamond Sutra. So uh, that's something yeah, I'll be talking about as, as part of the Diamond Sutra. The Diamond Sutra is one of the major, major texts in the Mahayana canon, the Mahayana group of texts, along with the Heart Sutra that we chanted today along with the Lotus Sutra, along with a number of others. I'm really only familiar with the Heart Sutra. Um, I read a similar book by the same author, actually, by Red Pine, also known as Bill Porter, that wrote a long commentary on the Heart Sutra. And so to transition into emptiness and why it's so important and why it's almost placed above... Um, why it's placed above morality and... Not, not necessarily placed above, but it gets talked about uh, more, more directly and, and yeah, there's more, more emphasis on it. 
Um, to talk about why that seems to be so important, I will uh, dive into the text here. Uh, I just wanted to say one quick thing about the name of the Diamond Sutra. Uh, seems to be about the names. Sometimes it has different names, but um, uh, the, the subtitle is The Perfection of Wisdom. There's different perfections of wisdom. Apparently there's a perfection of wisdom in 10,000 lines, perfection of wisdom in 500 or, or I don't know, 5,000 or something. This is about 350 lines, so it's relatively short, not as short as the Heart Sutra. Um, but the diamond part seems to be about the, the, the hardness of the diamond that can cut through anything and cutting through all of our delusions. And also, of course, the preciousness of, of a diamond. Um, so the text is set up as a dialogue between the Buddha and one of his uh, primary principal students, disciples, uh, Subhuti. The Heart Sutra is, has sort of a more mythological setting that the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, who's sort of a, almost equivalent of a spirit or something like that, who speaks. Uh, here it's a conversation between two relatively real people, the way it's expressed. And it's set up as a dialogue between the two. And there's some introduction in the first chapter. There's, it discusses the Buddha going into town to beg, to, to ask for food, for alms. And then he comes back and sits down at the sort of camp of his disciples. And they all gather around him so that he can speak. And there's some ritual. They, they touch their shoulder to the ground three times. And they walk around him three times. And some acts of, of veneration. Um, but then Subhuti asks a question. that uh, begins this here. Which I don't have as marked as well as I thought. Where did my question go? Here. Even so, Bhagavan, which is another name for the Buddha, this is Subhuti speaking, if a noble son or daughter should set forth on the bodhisattva path, that is the path of liberating everyone, how should they stand, how should they walk, and how should they control their thoughts? So this is the question that is proposed, that sort of in chapter 2, after the introduction, that gives rise to the rest of the discourse. And this is sort of standing, walking, and controlling thoughts. The controlling thoughts is obviously... Uh, a more extreme, more more in-depth thing, but standing and walking seems very simple. But these are a stand-in for uh, for how should one live one's life? Now, how should one move through life? How should one stand? And how should one walk? And how should one control thoughts? How should one meditate? And the answer is very indirect in a way, uh, which is quite typical of the Buddha uh, to, to give sort of answer things very indirectly. And the Buddha says, Subhuti, those who had set forth on the Bodhisattva path should thus give birth to this thought. So he says, how do we stand, how do we walk, and how do we control thoughts? Which is very often, how do we stop thoughts? So it's kind of a strange answer. It doesn't say anything about standing, walking, or controlling thoughts. Rather, he says, here's what you should think. Here's what you should give birth to this thought, uh, which is quite counterintuitive. And he says, this thought. However many beings there are in whatever realms of being might exist, 
whether they are born from an egg or born from a womb, born from the water or born from the air, whether they have form or no form, whether they have perception or no perception, or neither perception nor perception, neither perception nor no perception. In whatever conceivable realm of beings one might conceive of beings, in the realm of complete nirvana, this list is, the commentaries go into depth to what's something that has neither perception nor no perception, and a lot of it had to do with philosophical categories and, and, and schools of thought at the time. Basically, he's making a case of everything, absolutely everything, is what he's attempting to include here. I shall liberate them all. That's the thought that one should give rise to. All these beings and all the realms, I shall liberate them all. This is the bodhisattva idea. That in order to stand, walk, and control one's thoughts, one should start with the thought of liberating them all. But there's a bit more here that's very important to the text, the very next sentence. And though I thus liberate countless beings, not a single being is liberated. So he says, I'll liberate all beings, and even though I do this, no one is liberated. I, I haven't liberated any beings. And there's a very important thing here that comes, that, that plays out in the rest of the sutra, that's this idea of negation. Everything that gets stated is negated, and then very often that negation is negated. This is sort of multiplying something by negative one, it's negated, and then multiplying it by negative one again, which is somehow making it positive and affirming it in a way. There's a path that happens here. I'll get to that in a moment, the negation of the negation that happens. It's the sort of impossible philosophical part of the, the sutra. Uh, so this is what he says. How do, I, how do I live my life? He says, give birth to a thought to liberate all beings. Is, is, is that the core? So it's not, you know, right livelihood. It's not right speech. It's not, this seems to be underlying all of that. That if you can give birth to that thought, all of this will, all of the other parts will naturally arise. At least that's my understanding of it so far. And then the next chapter is uh, seems to be very important as well. Chapter 4 says, Even though you're giving this gift of liberation as a bodhisattva, that you'll be dedicating your life to liberating all beings, the Buddha places a heavy emphasis on don't be attached to the process of giving. Don't be attached to, oh, I'm so great, look at me, I'm liberating all these beings. And dedicates an entire chapter to it. I'll read a little bit of this chapter here. Moreover, Subhuti, when bodhisattvas give a gift, they should not be attached to a thing. When they give a gift, they should not be attached to anything at all. They should not be attached to a sight when they give a gift, nor should they be attached to a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dharma when they give a gift. Here you can see the resonance with the Heart Sutra that we read, where it's saying there's no eye, there's no nose, there's no ear, there's no consciousness. Dharma is basically has a lot of different meanings, but here it kind of means any mental phenomenon. It could be a thought, it could be an emotion, it could be even a sort of event, which in a sense is a mental phenomenon because we're registering any event with our mind. So without our mind, we can't really know of events. Um, Thus, Subhuti, fearless bodhisattvas should give a gift without being attached to a perception of an object. So there's no object to be attached to, you're just giving without any attachment. And why? Subhuti, the body of merit of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being, 
without being attached is not easy to measure. What do you think, Subhuti? Is the space to the east easy to measure? And the Buddha says, is the space to the west? Is the space above you? Is the space below? Because this is immeasurable, the gift that's giving, not just be it's so great it's immeasurable, but it's not, not just in that sense of how wonderful it is, but in the sense that you can't possibly figure out what it is that you're giving. It's, it's beyond comprehension. So there's nothing to even really try to attach to your here. If you're attaching to something, it's, you're wrong because there's, it's, it's impossible to attach to. And then the fifth chapter, it starts to get into after establishing, here's the thought to give rise to, here's a cautionary tale about the thought, don't get too attached to this thought. But the fifth chapter, I think, is where the, for me, at least what I found most interesting or most difficult, most challenging, and, and most unique to the Heart Sutra, perhaps, or to the Diamond Sutra, um, where it gets into this counterintuitive logic of negation and, uh, yeah, the sort of negating negation. And according to commentators, according to the commentator of this book, and according to Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary in here that he cites in this book is, now that you finish the first five chapters, go back and read them several more times before moving on, because the first five chapters contain the core. They're, they're at the center here, and really the other 22 chapters, 32 chapters, the other 17 chapters, um, are just very much an elaboration of these first five. And here we find a logical formula that repeats very often about this negation. And to give a breakdown of this, it starts, chapter 5, Buddha speaking. What do you think, Subhuti? Can the Tathagata, which is the Buddha, can the Tathagata be seen by means of a possession of attributes? Subhuti says, No, indeed, Bhagavan, the Tathagata cannot be seen by means of the possession of attributes. And why not? Bhagavan, the Tathagata says, the Tathagata, sorry, what the Tathagata says is the possession of attributes is no possession of attributes. What does that mean? The possession of attributes is no possession of attributes. This is the idea of emptiness, that anything that exists only exists because of everything else around it. One way uh, I, I explain this to myself is with language. For example, if you take the color brown, the color brown can only be understood because there's all the other colors. It's not blue, it's not red, it's not yellow, it's not orange, it's not green, etc. So our understanding of brown actually comes from the reference to all the other colors outside of it. So in a sense, brown is empty of brown. There's only the other colors that it forms an opposition to that we can understand. And we can do this with any concept or with any object. My hand is not made of hand. It's made of skin, it's made of blood, it's made of bone, it's made of whatever. And my blood is not made of blood, it's made of water, it's made of whatever cells that are produced by sunlight, that were produced by my DNA, that were given to me by my parents, and on endlessly, so that there's no hand here, there's just everything else that's not a hand that makes it a hand. So this was, according to the commentaries here, this was the understanding of emptiness in older schools of Buddhism. The world is not what it seems. You have to understand that emptiness pervades and that any object doesn't really make sense. 
it, if you try to break it down and, and make it, it just as a bunch of other things. Any object is a bunch of other things that aren't really there. So Subhuti thinks he's being very clever here when the Buddha says, can, can the Buddha be seen by my attributes? And there's a list of like 32 attributes of the Buddha that were traditionally compiled. The, the, you can look at, the, at the, the, the figure on the altar and his, the protrusion on the head and his elongated ears and other attributes. Um, he says, can I be seen by my attributes? And Subhuti says, ah, I figured something out here. No, you can't. Because attributes aren't attributes. We have to negate all of them, right? Buddha says, mm, he says, the Buddha says he, he negates. And so Buddha hasn't quite figured it out. This, thus having been said, the Buddha told the Venerable Subhuti, since the possession of attributes is an illusion, Subhuti, and no possession of attributes is no illusion, by means of attributes that are no attributes, the Buddha can indeed be seen. I'll read that again. Not that it'll really help much, but I'll read it again. Since the possession of attributes is an illusion, Subhuti, and no possession of attributes is no illusion, by means of attributes that are no attributes, the Buddha can indeed be seen. So he says, no, you're wrong. Yes, attributes do work, but only through this very strange logic. And this logic plays out again where he says, you know, blue is not blue, and that's why it's blue. Or my teachings are not my teachings, and that's why they're my teachings. This formula gets repeated over and over again. The best that I've been able to do with it, and the next chapter is Subhuti expressing his incredulity at this, <laughs> what? Uh, which I'll talk about too. The best I can do with this, and it's, I don't feel like I have any kind of grasp on it, which I think is okay, because I don't know that how much grasp you can get on this. Uh, but emptiness, uh, you have to not attach to emptiness, which was sort of the Mahayana accusation of the older schools. So you're attached to emptiness. You're trying to negate the world too much, but you're attached to emptiness. And this is what Buddha clarifies here in this passage, that emptiness is empty of emptiness. Therefore, there's stuff. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. I can repeat it again. But like I said, how much emptiness has, there's no emptiness in emptiness. So therefore, there's the universe. There's the world. Um, emptiness itself uh, is made of everything else somehow. And... That seems to be at the core of this text. As I said, it gets reiterated quite a bit. And this is the one thing um, that yeah, gets repeated and that, that, I've, that has stood out to me. Um, I'm sure there's other interpretations, and especially my interpretation is biased by these commentaries. I'm sure there's, there's countless commentaries on this text. And I'll end with, uh, not, not quite end, but... And my discussion, I have a couple more commentaries, just kind of how I'm working through this and how it's working. But my last thing I'll read from the, the text is the next thing that Subhuti says, next chapter, chapter six. So we've finished chapter five, which according to several commentators, it's the core. It ends there. It's, you know, emptiness is empty of emptiness. Okay, the end. Okay, I don't know. Um, this having been said, the venerable Subhuti asked the Buddha, Bhagavan, Will there be any beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, 
in the final 500 years of the Dharma-ending age, who give birth to a perception of the truth of the words, such as a sutra spoken here. Sorry, I read that wrong. The truth of words of a sutra such as that spoken here. So this, I was very confused, very intrigued by this. Beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma-ending age. Subhuti asked, will there be anyone at this time that can understand this impossibly difficult thing here? And the commentary said this is, uh, the worldview at the time was that the world was always in its constant state of decline, which I know is a very important thing in Hinduism, that there's these 100,000-year-long epochs, the four stages, and in each successive stage, uh, there's less understanding, there's more chaos, there's less people doing their duty, there's, there's, there's more evil, there's more whatever. Uh, and so there's a sense that, okay, the Buddha's around, we've got to be in a good age right now, so Buddha's thinking when he asks this, okay, things are good now, and I can't even understand this. So Buddha... In the end of times, when no one has, when understanding has decayed, I mean, if I can barely understand this now, if your best student, me, can, I can barely grasp this, uh, what about in the future when things are declining? I mean, how does anyone have a chance? And of course, the Buddha's answer is yes. He says, don't ask this, Subhutius. He says, yeah. Subhuti, do not ask. And he repeats the same thing. Uh, because he says, of course, uh, because this wisdom, bodhisattvas transcend time. They're not linked to a specific time or a specific place. And the, the, the sutra itself is very much thought of as something that's, that, that transcends any notion of time, any notion of, of understanding, really. So even if understanding is worse, it's not a problem. It will still produce countless bodhisattvas who will liberate countless beings. Uh, so sort of uh, a, a, a gesture of optimism to, to, to me and to, to us who read this idea what's going on here. Okay, but he says it's, it's possible. Um, and just to close my discussion, as I said, the, the rest of the text has many interesting things, but according to the commentators, it's largely an elaboration of these ideas already expressed. Uh, the, I was thinking about just this morning, because uh, so many of our talks are less technical than this, uh, and very much about how we live our lives and how these things relate to our lives. I wanted to try to say something about that. I was thinking, I'm not real sure. Uh, so I don't have a great answer. One thing, though, that uh, that I will say is that I'm sort of inspired by the difficulty, personally, um, of such a philosophy. Um, so yeah, I'm inspired by by this philosophy which I think is important, it seems to be... But, but I'm not quite sure if that's right, though, because I'm not so much inspired by, oh, what does it mean to liberate all beings, which the Buddha says is the, the thought to give birth to, but I'm inspired to this process of negation. And there seems to be a link between the two, because when the Buddha says, give birth to this thought, liberate all beings, he says in the same chapter, the very next sentence after, liberate all beings, yet there's no beings to liberate. So I'm more intrigued by the process of this negation and the, uh, the sort of philosophical inquiry there uh, at the moment, which I think is okay because it seems very close. Maybe, maybe I haven't quite given birth to the thought yet. Uh, but for the Buddha, this, is, this, this idea of liberation is very, very close to its negation. 
So, so maybe I'm not quite there yet, but I'm adjacent. I'm next, next to it. I'm in the next sentence. So when, one sentence away. Maybe I'll get back to the one before at some point. Um, and yeah, so to close with one more thought from the commentaries here. The book is amazing. Bill Pine is a scholar of Sanskrit and of Chinese, Mandarin. And so he gives a little couple verses from the, yeah, a couple lines. And then this scholar says this, this scholar says this, and compiling all sorts of Sanskrit and Chinese scholars on it. Um, I wanted to read, which one did I want to read? This one. When your practice and understanding meets, you will see the Buddha. And that's the comment that's from Seng Chao, and that's the comment on the last, on the very difficult negation. The, the attributes is no attributes gives rise to no illusion. And all this one scholar says is when your practice and understanding meets, you will see the Buddha. And that sort of gave me some encouragement because I realized sort of how intellectually I'm approaching this text. Um, but both sides seem to be important. So not to overdevelop one, maybe there's the risk of that, but uh, it's not just practice, it's not just understanding, but the meaning of these two. So yeah, I guess I didn't come up with a very good answer of how I, how I live with this and how this does anything in my life, other than maybe the slight attitude of, um, of confidence, that there's, there's an expression of confidence that this can be understood, this can be carried out, that's encouraging. And the only times I've ever felt like I've really understood things are in meditation or in my practice. I sort of don't quite take this, I don't want to say I don't take it seriously, but I don't quite trust I've, I've lost trust in the discursive thinking, which seems to be part, not, not, not that I don't trust it, but that I, I don't put as much stake in it. Um, so I'm not sure quite what conclusion I have with that. Um, but I'll, I'll end there. So thank you very much.